I'm Ben Dominich, editor-at-large of, of The Spectator World, and I'm happy to welcome you to the district and to welcome my guest for our conversation today. Kyle Smith is the movie reviewer uh, for The Wall Street Journal, but he is also someone who has been just an expert in pop culture uh, for so many years, someone whose opinion I value greatly. Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. You're too kind. Thank you. Kyle, I really struggled with the prep for this. I had to go back and think about the things that I'd actually watched <laughs> and review the things that I had opinions about that were pretty strong. And what I found is I have a lot of strong opinions about the television shows that I watched in 2022, but not a lot of strong opinions about the movies that I saw in 2022. Is this an example of hangover from pandemic sort of era approvals for movies and those things just taking kind of a longer time to make? I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is the only movies that are really getting the promotional marketing budgets anymore are the superhero movies and people are kind of tired of them and they think they're all the same, which is not really, not really true, but they have definitely peaked. I think we've seen peak superhero and this year had a, a notably weak slate of, for instance, Marvel movies. I like a lot of the Marvel movies, but all the ones that have come out in the last year have been terrible, in my opinion. Black Panther 2, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, a terrible Spider-Man movie that came out last December. So I'm making this point in my Wall Street Journal essay uh, later this week, which is that I think adults looking for adult storytelling about real people or similar to real people in the ballpark with real people. They, they've got a habit of looking for that from the movies, you know, movies like sideways or little miss sunshine movies like that used to kind of catch on and then everyone would go see them. But I think now people just are, are like, no, I'm not going out to the movies to, to see that. There's too much good stuff on TV. Frankly, there's a ton of great stuff on TV. Why go out? So you brought, you brought up right off the bat, you know, a question that I was going to ask you, which is, you know, kind of have we reached peak superhero is in retrospect end game, you know, not just the end of a certain period of the MCU, but the end of an era of a type of film that would have success and connect with broad audiences. Because I had, I actually really enjoyed the first Black Panther movie and I enjoyed the last Thor movie, Thor Ragnarok, quite a lot. And then <laughs> That's the third I, one, not the, not the last one. There was one this summer. I know. But then I had no desire to see Thor Love and Thunder. And I had no desire to go and see the, you know, a, a Black Panther movie without Chadwick Boseman. And so I, I found in my own kind of, of movie watching pattern, I was like, I, I don't really care about this, which surprised me because that's not the way I might have felt in, in past years. What do you think is actually going on there in terms of whether we've reached peak superhero and why? Well, they, they sort of ran out of, they're running short of ideas, one thing. They, they've, they've taken Batman in, in an even darker direction. Each, each new iteration of Batman makes the other one look like kind of, a, you know, a simpering clown. So the new Batman is almost like a 70s gritty movie, and it's not even kind of entertaining. They sort of forgot to put in the entertainment part. I enjoyed it, but it's not, it's, it's not, it's not like a fun movie in any way. The, all previous Batman movies were at least in part fun and in part dark. Now it's just like totally like, dark it's raining all the time and everybody's miserable and everybody's ugly and you can't even recognize colin farrell and is as the penguin because he's he looks so terrible but the the other uh direction they're going is is just making um these 
uh, superhero movies entirely aimed at like teens and tweeners with very short attention spans. And I think that the thing that directors are really worried about is that the kids are going to get off their cell phones and, and look on Instagram or whatever, or whatever kids are on oh, TikTok, where the kids are. So they have to like have something spectacular happening every five minutes. Otherwise they're going to lose the audience. And I think, uh, you know, people who are past the age of 30 are probably uh, watching these movies and going, it's just like, you know, demolition derby of, of special effects one after the other. It's not like that in the new Black Panther movie. It's kind of an exception. But the, the two, uh, both the Thor movie and the Doctor Strange movie this summer were kind of addicted to meaningless spectacle. And and now that we've got this, you know, when you have like a multi, multi-movie multi universe, you know, I think the Avengers Endgame is 23rd in that series and they're all kind of tied together. It, it becomes increasingly possible to make everything cohere. And, and so they've started this new trend of both A, time travel, and B, multiverse, which means nothing means anything because you can you know, always jump back in time and redo everything. Or you can jump to multiverse where everything's slightly different and slightly better. So nothing's ever final. Like, I mean, we could, we could have an Iron Man movie tomorrow. It's just like in a multiverse, it's like slightly different. And, you know, New York City is called New, new Dorp City or something. They can do anything <laughs> they want. Now they've kind of they've acknowledged they're like shattering the form now with this time travel and, and multiverse stuff. And it just, it makes everything kind of seem silly and disposable and not dramatic at all. So to play devil's advocate, I would argue that the best Spider-Man movie in the last you know decade was Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, the animated version of yes. uh, Spider-Man, Great which song. was, it's not just a crowd pleaser. I think I, I'd have to go back and look at the other movies from that year, but I think I may have rewatched that movie more than any other. It's I've certainly rewatched it more than any other Spider-Man movie. And, and on the same token, you know, one of the movies that, that obviously, you know, shined this year was everything everywhere all at once, which, you know, got a ton of, of critical praise and, and sort of became this audience sort of, of uh, slow burning interest. And, reading the interviews with the creators of that film, they became very intimidated by the success of another animated multiverse entity, Rick and Morty. And basically they were worried that their movie wouldn't come out in time before Rick and Morty would do all the things that they would do with it. <laughs> and and so you have the success of kind of these animated multiverse things. My own argument would be they don't, use that as a crutch they use that as a storytelling vehicle and it really does feel like a crutch to just sort of say hey we're gonna bring back andrew garfield and give him another shot at this role that he you know famously botched you know isn't that wonderful or in the case of like you know future batman or the canceled you know batwoman movie we're gonna bring back michael keaton wouldn't it be great to see him you know put things on again it's kind of the brett Favre approach to quarterbacking in the nfl do you think the old gunslinger can do it you know roll out there and do it again the 49ers need a quarterback right now so you know but anyway what what is your take on this kind of explosion of multiverse things and the fact that some of them at least you know the examples i cited seem to be able to use that for effective storytelling and the others seem to be using it just as an escape for sloppy and lazy writing it's fan service you know it's like in the old jerry lewis telethon he'd bring out you know here's frank sinatra here's dean martin and here's sammy davis and everybody cheers because we uh, we love all these people but there's, there's, no, there's no story there it's just like uh give, you know throwing candy to the to the crowd you know or t-shirt cannon you know you're just throwing a meaningless garbage at the crowd uh, to get a reaction out of them 
that is very much my take on the, the last live action Spider-Man movie. But of course, the animated one was was really clever and really funny. I mean, we had like a, a film noir Spider-Man played by, by Nicolas Cage. It was really funny. It had a lot of interesting twists and it wasn't at all like, oh, we'll just abandon the story and like pick up a different storyline because we're tired of that one. And this one's flashier or something, which is exactly the vibe of Doctor Strange and the multiverse. It's like, oh, let's just throw this away and start over and you know, bring in a bunch of new iterations of the X-Men and uh, bring in John Krasinski, you know, just bring in, uh, you know, famous actors for cameos just for, for no reason. Yeah, there's a way to do it cleverly. And I thought everything, everywhere, all at once is a very clever movie. There are times in that movie where I thought it's kind of all an, uh, an excuse to kind of jump around and, and put everybody in different costumes and put everyone in a different world. But it did all cohere at the end. And we sort of go back to the laundromat and sort of like it's a wonderful life, you know, go back to your original ordinary life and appreciate it a little bit more. So uh, I, I like the way they kind of brought it to a point at the end, although it was a little too flashy for my taste. I, I, as you were saying this, I was just thinking about, you know, what a shame it is that Sean Connery is past. Otherwise we could have the bond multiverse. <laughs> they all, they all come through the portals and combine together. <laughs> um, and wouldn't that be so? <laughs> so uh, yes. And, and, and one of them is ine- inevitably played by, by, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones or something like that. Um, so when it comes to the movie experience in 2022, what are some of the good things that stand out to you about it? What were some of the films that impressed you and that stood out as being something that you would recommend to others and that you might return to yourself? A lot of the movies I thought were really interesting uh, were indie movies. And I, I sort of looked at the box office chart and they're down like around number 198 on the box office chart and whatnot. <laughs> and I, I, very often I, I have this problem at parties where people say, oh, what have you seen lately? That's good. And I'll go this, this, that, and the other. And they'll go, they'll go oh, never heard of any of those movies because they don't really put a lot of marketing into movies like the Banshees of Inisher and the uh, very dark Martin McDonough comedy set in the West coast of Ireland, which has a knockout performance by Colin Farrell as this dumb guy who's best friend uh, played by Brendan Gleeson just decides to stop talking to him one day. And uh, it's sort of comical and sad at first. And then it becomes very, very dark and violent and scary and it becomes uh, it, it, it without pressing the point too much, it, it could have various allegorical uh, implications for how we, we get along with each other, how we're not communicating, how we become polarized. It, it doesn't like press any point, like, uh, you know, no mention of uh, any political party or anything, but uh, there's a very kind of meaningful um, uh, subplot in that movie, which is there's an Irish civil war going on. It's set in 1922, I think was the year of the Irish civil war. And um, they're on an island off the coast of Ireland, it's part of Ireland, but uh, a little bit removed. And they literally can't figure out like which side is doing what, and you know, you know who just blew up what. Uh, it's all this kind of mystery. And um, Mark McDonough is one of the best playwrights. I think he's the best playwright of his generation. He has this very kind of very funny, kind of violent Quentin Tarantino streak. But he always has like underneath it, you're, you're sort of trying to figure out what the social point is, and uh, it's uh, susceptible to, to several meanings. So that was my number one movie of the year. Uh, others I really liked were um, Father Stew with Mark Wahlberg, great movie, very very moving, meaningful story about power of Catholic faith. Uh, this is about a boxer who um, it was kind of a failed actor, and uh, he, he was called to the cloth. And uh, his story I thought was very meaningful. And Wahlberg basically financed it himself. He can, he can spare it. I was, I was sorry that that didn't find a, a larger audience, but uh, it's uh, on Netflix now, and everyone should watch it on Netflix. 
Um, and I also liked uh, these uh, black comedies um, about the plutocracy. One was called The Menu with Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. Very, very funny, very, very dark comedy about foodies, uh, pretentious food snobs. And the other that was in a similar vein was Triangle of Sadness by uh, Ruben Ostlund. Who, um, I did not a, see that one. So he's a, this is his first English language movie. He's from Sweden and um, he grew up in this very contentious household. His parents are communists and uh, they used to have arguments around the dinner table. I, I think his brother went and became like a banker or something. His, banker, his brother went the other way. So you it's, always tell, you know. <laughs> this is a movie that's kind of informed by a Marxist viewpoint, but it kind of also makes fun of Marxists all the way through. There's a, a Marxist uh, cruise ship captain played by Woody Harrelson. He's a, a very hilarious character. And uh, okay, now now I do need to watch this movie. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's an, he's an alcoholic cruise ship Marxist. It's it's a hilarious portrait. I wouldn't be surprised if Woody Harrelson himself was a Marxist and maybe didn't get the joke. But Marxists do not come off looking looking well in this movie in the end, which is as I said in my review, it's sort of like a Louis Buñuel version of Gilligan's Island. Like it's a very vicious satire about uh, a group of random people who get shipwrecked. Uh, so. Very worth seeing, but uh, also sort of laceratingly dark comedy by a guy who's a very, very contrarian voice in European cinema. A lot of left-wing critics really hate him because they think he's some sort of reactionary, even though he um, is uh, someone who's kind of deeply versed in, in left, lefty Marxist dogma. What else did I have on my list? Oh, I really liked uh, this film uh, Breaking with John Boyega, the British actor who was in uh, Star Wars. It's sort of like a Black Lives Matter Dog Day Afternoon. It's set almost entirely in a bank. It's based on a real story about a, um, a veteran, a Marine Corps veteran, who kind of broke into a bank and threatened to, to blow it up because he thought he was owed like you know, eighty eight hundred dollars in veterans benefits or something like that. And um, it, it's the, the portrait, the portrayal of the character is kind of much like Pacino on Dog Day Afternoon. It's not, it's not quite crazy. He's he's definitely on the edge, but there's sort of a, 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 an underlying logic to his bizarre behavior i thought it was really a, a grippingly done film and um highly recommend that too well i will of course ask you to assess it was released in december of 2021 but ended up uh, being on all the lists for uh top money makers for 2022 the film that i've undoubtedly seen the most as the parent of a two-year-old girl sing Two, starring matthew <laughs> mcconaughey <laughs> Uh, Sing 2 wasn't very good. Sing, Sing was very good. Sing no. 2 was not so good. Yeah. yeah. No, Sing, like Sing actually has a plot. Sing 2 is just like throwing everything at the screen. I will be sure to pass along your negative review to uh, my daughter when she wakes up from her nap. I was curious about a couple of different movies that I did see uh, this year, uh, including the the fired from the or, or mutual parting of ways from the Doctor Strange movie that you mentioned. The director went on to make uh, The Black Phone, which is based on a short story written by Stephen King's son. I was curious as to your take on that, because I thought that was kind of a an interesting horror movie. I haven't seen it yet. I hear it's good, and I hear Smile is yeah. good, too, but I haven't seen that yet, either. Yeah, Smile, it, I will definitely see when it comes on streaming. I've had a number of people tell me that it's... It, uh, it's on now. It's on Paramount Plus. And yes, yeah. absolutely horrifying. What did you think of Nope? I didn't love it. I thought it promised more than it delivered. There's, it was way too slow and drawn out and kind of portentous. And I thought the uh, gimmick at the end was was not very satisfying. I found it very uneven. I really enjoyed parts of it, but I, I agree with you. I feel like it was trying to 
trying to achieve more than it actually did as a film. What were your thoughts on the crowd pleaser definitely of the year, you know, even more so than the Spider-Man movie had to be a Top Gun Maverick? Yeah. Looks like it's going to be uh, number one for the year, made $700 million. I, I thought it was fine, but very, very formulaic and not not really interesting. It, did, it hit all the beats properly and well, but you know, every step of it was like straight out of the screenwriting handbook. And uh, you know, I don't really have that much desire to see it again unless my wife wants to see it or something. That was the thing for me. It just, it, I felt very satisfied having seen it. But then as I left the theater, I was also saying to myself, you know what? I'm probably never going to watch that again. Which to me is not the mark of a of a film that is is you know all that good, uh, even though it was very satisfying and it it hit you know all those beats and obviously you know repurposed very effectively the plot for Star Wars. Yeah. So <laughs> also also you have to ding it for having for lacking the courage to even name the enemy. Like we couldn't say it was Iran because like I don't know are we afraid of the Iranian film industry banning our film? I don't know. Just, just say Iran or North Korea. Nobody's going to care. Like, I mean, I know they can't even say North Korea because some, someday there'll be a North Korea know. market. Who knows? <laughs> the Northman. I was looking forward to this movie because of how much I enjoyed. I, I did not love The Lighthouse, but I think The Witch is probably a movie that I've recommended to dozens of people. Uh, you know, since it came out as being something that if they missed it, they need to go check out around Halloween. What did you think of The Northman? He's uh, very gifted. Yeah, I thought the, the lighthouse is kind of a crazy mess, but still very interesting. And we're seeing, let's see, Robert, uh, what's his last name? Uh, uh, is it Eggers? Eggers. Robert Eggers. Uh, something like, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I thought the Northman, it was, it kind of swung for the fences. So I appreciated that. I, I felt like it wasn't, it was more like a solid double off the wall, not like a grand slam. It was, uh, is very well done. I loved. I love that ending. That spectacularly violent duel to the death. But we're uh, well. I won't give it away. It was. Uh, it was. It was crazy. It was fun. It was intense. I. I didn't like leave the theater in a state of elation like I would in like a like a great Christopher Nolan movie, I guess. But uh, I thought it was. You know, it was almost a great movie. It's still one of the best of the year. I. I was so disappointed that it didn't do better than it did, only because I feel like. You know, that kind of sweet spot of the sub hundred million dollar, mm-hmm. but still kind of expensive movie. Yeah, I think about 70 million. And ton, it must have lost something like that, you know, and it's like that that's that used to be kind of a sweet spot where you would really get, you know, quality films that had the budget to do what they wanted to do, but weren't so expensive that they became bloated and, you know, ridiculous studio things. And uh, so I wish I, I, I liked it, but I wish it had done better than it did. A- another film that, that certainly gathered a lot of attention this year, you know, despite, I think, uh, the fact that it was, it was ended up being such a weird conglomeration of things was Elvis. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's approach to telling that story. What was your take on that depiction of it? I hate Baz Luhrmann. I hate that kind of music video style of crazy editing. And like, we're, we're constantly playing with the, with the film stocks and shifting back and forth. And, you know, shit. it's kind of directed at people in an attention span of five seconds or less. As everyone notes, the last two scenes are fantastic, but those are the two scenes where it's not a Baz Luhrmann movie anymore. It's just, uh, there's a kind of quiet scene on the runway 
where he stops with the with, with the crazy editing and the crazy camera movements, and it's just like two people talking. And it's very moving. But then the very last scene is just that collage of clips of Elvis himself and going, "Holy cow, he was really." suffering at the end he's sweating and he's fat and it's so tragic he was only 42 years old it's just it's just an immensely tragic figure just very very gifted and and just uh caused his own destruction just couldn't help being his own destroyer that lead performance basically i i, I when i came out of the movie i was just sort of saying i wished that i could have seen this same movie directed by somebody else because that lead performance i thought was extremely impressive. That kid, you know, from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, played Elvis, was, I thought, you know, Austin extremely, Butler. extremely good in the role. But the that that multi-film editing style, and I mean, you'll know this, and I don't, that was one of the things, it irritated me so much about that movie, but it also irritated me uh, about the Adam McKay Lakers series that ran on HBO, I don't know if you had a chance to see that, but they would just constantly be shifting between these different styles. And, you know, within sort of the same scene of, of you know, you would have a character walking down a hallway in that, for instance, and it would have three different film styles as it was going along. And I'm like, why are you doing this? You know, just pick one. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me. Where did that come from? Oliver Stone, I don't know. He did that in kind of Natural Born Killers. That was, he was sort of ahead of his time, U-Turn. But that was kind of like the cocaine era of his career, I think. And it, it sort of recaptured that kind of jittery sense of, you know, you can't hold a thought for more than two seconds and you're kind of paranoid and, you know, this crazy uh, overlaid voices and things and blending scenes together and there's constant flashbacks and stuff like that. Yeah, it drives me crazy. And uh, I couldn't I couldn't watch Adam McKay's show for that reason. I can't stand Adam McKay. He kind of did that in Vice a little bit, too. He, he did. He did. And it's just, uh, it's not even political. It's that, by the way, the best thing that Adam McKay ever did is The Other Guys, which I recommend to lots of people. I think it's a, a very entertaining movie and very funny. That Brothers. Featuring, that Brothers. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's you're either another guy's guy or you're a stepbrothers guy. But like, you know, there, there, is, there is an entertainment factor for those films, but they are long. They're old now. You know, that's the, that's the thing that we have to remember. Just two, uh, two more quick uh, movie reactions. Prey, the Predator movie that ran on Hulu, starring an, an actress, Native American actress that uh, I came to like on the show Legion, FX's Legion, uh, got a little bit more attention because it was just kind of an interesting take on where, how about we throw the Predator back in time, you know, as, as kind of a genre alien figure. Did you watch this movie? Did you have any interest in it? No. I, 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 <laughs> I do love Atlanta on FX, though. That's a great show. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that in, in a minute. And then one other thing, Ty West, let's talk about him for a second. He was trending on Twitter, actually, the other day. I haven't actually seen his movies yet. What did he do? He did X and Pearl this year. No, I, uh, I know those are his movies, but I haven't seen either. What did he do that got him on Twitter? Though? I will I will explain it to you. In fact, I will I will bring up the the offensive thing that he did. So he participated in the, in the, in fact, it's the recommended thing when I go to, to Google, Ty West's sight and sound top 10 ballot. Okay. As you know, you know, they had the whole sight and sound vote that resulted in the elevation of a film that I've never heard of and will never watch to the top of the list, uh, surpassing uh, both uh, Citizen Kane and Vertigo because it has a female feminist mm -hmm. director. Ty West was asked. He committed suicide, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. 
So that makes it hot. Oh, okay. It wasn't on the list before. She killed herself seven years ago. It wasn't on the list in 2012. Now it's a big deal because mm. she's dead. Okay. So, of course, you know, you have all these lists submitted by all these different directors. Wes Anderson's list is entirely French films, he explains, because he's writing the list in France. Ty West was asked what his top 10 films, of course, were to contribute to the list. Allow me to read you the list. Citizen Kane, The Godfather, 2001, Apocalypse Now, Psycho, Sunset Boulevard, Chinatown, Jaws, Taxi Driver, Easy Rider. Film Twitter, as you <laughs> might expect, freaked out about this. Absolutely freaked out about it. Thought, you know, basically people were saying it's as if he Googled top 10 films or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> and of course, then there was the backlash that followed where people were like, no, he's just listing the bangers. He's just listing the hits, you know, like this, this is a totally defensible list of movies that had enormous impact. Personally, I would probably swipe, uh, uh, swipe out Sunset Boulevard for the apartment and I would swipe out Easy Rider for Casablanca, but that's me. You know? So, so it, but he had provoked these people. And also it was very funny because they were saying Ty West pretends to be this edgy, you know, 70s influenced horror director. And in reality, he's just showing us how how basic and white he is. That was basically the the perspective of, of film Twitter. Yeah, that's funny because uh, I hate Easy Rider, by the way. The other nine are all great. I hate uh, Easy Rider, yeah. it, It's just funny that uh, <laughs> everything over time becomes like your, 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 grand, your granddad's movie, like Taxi Driver, which was completely, you know, out of the blue craziness at the time. Now it's like, oh, your grandfather likes Taxi Driver. <laughs> it's, it's so insane. <laughs> or, or Citizen Kane, which a lot of people think it's too artsy to get through. It's like, wow, Citizen Kane is conventional for you that's hard ben dreyfus tweeted out this article from the atlantic today about i don't know if it was written today or, or written just a little bit earlier but about how 2001 was like a disappointment for the person watching it because they had seen seen its motifs in so many other movies and it's like well but this is the reason those motifs are in those movies this is the whole reason they exist yeah but but then People older than us would say, well, you have to like, you know, Battleship Potemkin or, you know, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Why, why don't you love those movies? Because that's where the ideas originally came from. So it, it is it is hard because culture is like a, you know, layers of sediments build up over time. And it's kind of you kind of have to culturally, you know, peel through. You have to be an archaeologist and kind of like dig through and say, oh, no, there actually wasn't, you know, before Rocky, for instance, there, there weren't Steadicam shots. So that that amazing shot, the training scene where he's running through the streets and he goes up the steps. There was never a shot like that in, in all of human cinema before because they, they physically couldn't do it. They had just invented the Steadicam. But now there's a Steadicam in every you know Pepsi commercial or whatever. You can't convince people that that was an important kind of breakthrough moment. I'm looking forward to my future of arguing that Blade Runner is still relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Let's shift to TV with the time that we have left. I watched so much more television this year than I watched movies, and I was impressed with quite a lot of it. I have to assume that most of the best of lists, I mean, they won't be able to leave it out, and many of them that are starting to come out, include it as, as number one or number two, have to be impressed with the uh, final season of Better Call Saul. I don't know if you had the chance to watch all of that, but I'm curious as to your opinion. Yeah, that was really the only show I would watch immediately after it came out. I, I'm usually happy to wait and 
binge it a year later or whatever. But yeah, I was actually watching that with bated breath all the way through. And there was a long break, I think, between the last two, like a year and a half. Bob Odenkirk had a heart attack. They had to shut down for, I don't know, six weeks or whatever. Yeah, I think it's a great show. I don't like it as much as Breaking Bad. Yeah, it's a different kind of show. But but what I would argue is just that it it stands on its own as being its own separate thing extremely well. And and Odenkirk, I mean, who could have predicted the arc to his career? I mean, it's just kind of amazing to look back on that. Yeah, I, went back, I, I read his memoir. I did a piece on his memoir, and I forget what it was that attracted them to um, the Breaking Bad crew he'd, he'd done something that he didn't think was very interesting or important but that's that's what got him the call from breaking bad yeah i, I think I, I thought it was a conceptual comedy it was kind of like it wasn't wasn't that great like mr show i watched a lot of mr show kind of going well it's kind of interesting but i'm not laughing yeah it, for me it was in the same category as like kids in the hall or something like that where like occasionally it really hits but most of the time you're just going ah that's all right <laughs> but yeah he turned out to be the the great every man character and that was one of the great characters in tv history i would put on my top 10 of all time list but breaking bad would be number one the wire number two <laughs> the uh, you mentioned atlanta before they had their final season as well atlanta has been a show that i have found to be really brilliant at points in ways that surprised me which is one of the things that i enjoy about really good t- television you know just if I can't predict the story beats or where things are necessarily going, and then it's it sort of is not uh, you know a construct, but something that seems to really hit the storyline, I am always impressed with it. What did you think of their final season? I haven't finished it yet. I'm on like I'm like eight. Uh, I think I'm like six episodes behind, but I, I love it. I think it's one of the best sitcoms in history. You can't even really call it a sitcom because it's beyond that. I, I put it in the same category as kind of like Black Mirror. Like there's little parables about the way we live now, only with Black Mirror is about technology and Atlanta's about race, mostly, not not all the time. But uh, some of them are, are just caustically hilarious and bizarre and, and just so uh, so well thought out. Like, uh, did you see the episode on reparations? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. the way that ended, it starts with this guy's like an NPR listener, you know, going to get his, his muffin in the coffee shop and he's hearing about how... Elon Musk has been required to pay some random black person because like his ancestors or somebody he was related to owned slaves or something. So there's, you know, a black person like randomly sued Elon Musk saying, you owe, you personally owe me $5 million or whatever. So they took that logic all the way to the end. And at the end of the episode, all the white people are like waiting on black people in a restaurant because all the property has been transferred over to the black people. And it's kind of hilarious and dark, but it's also, there's, it's so insane and absurd to, to like trace out the logic of reparations, which is a logic that a lot of people are going, yeah, this makes perfect sense. Let's do this. I mean, you're taking one random person and giving their money to another random person that they have no connection to whatsoever. I, one of the things that, and I think it has this in common, the show Louis, which you can now purchase from Louis CK's website. Yes. You brought it, back, it would occasionally have these moments where, you know, it would normally feel like you were in reality and you were navigating a world of, reality and then it would have these random moments for instance i'm thinking of like the homeless man being suddenly shuffled into a limo and replaced by an, an equally disheveled looking homeless man in the same spot atlanta has that kind of thing going for it where it will just uh, it will have these stories that seem very real and very you know uh, based in reality uh, and then it will just have something happen out of nowhere 
that both shocks and is hilarious. The invisible car, for instance, being an example of that. Um, but no, I, I just think I've recommended so many episodes of that show, to, like specific episodes to people. Just, just even if you don't want to buy into the whole show, just watch this. And that reparations episode is certainly one of them. Andor received an enormous amount of critical praise. The, the Star Wars spinoff that's probably done the least business for Disney Plus uh, in terms of viewership. But Tony Gilroy created the same guy who made Michael Clayton. Very unique. It, it feels like many at various points, kind of a corporate espionage thriller, you know, more than a, a typical sci-fi story. Uh, what was your take on, on its approach to the Star Wars universe? I've only seen the first couple of episodes, but I mean to catch up on it. I know a lot of people I, I respect really like it, but uh, what, I just want to finish a previous thought. When you're talking about Louis C.K. and Atlanta, they're, they're great examples of politically incorrect humor. I, I assume everybody on both of those shows probably votes Democrat, but all the action and comedy is making fun of the establishment, right? Think of Monty Python and they're making fun of the banker or the housewife. That that's where the that's where the voltage is. And the establishment today is cultural liberalism, cultural leftism. And there's just so much gold there that you can mine for comedy and hardly anybody's doing it. When people do it like uh like the, the Atlanta folks, Donald Glover and his brother and the rest of that team, they're really interesting writers because you can tell they sit around going Okay, what's what's really happening here? Not not like what's the conventional New York Times uh, editorial writer take on it? What's what's really happening underneath the surface? And they're quite willing to make some of the some of the black people don't come off very well on that show. Some of the white people don't don't come off badly at all because things are complicated. And race <laughs> is the one area in human life where we're supposed to go. Oh no no, it's very simple. Everything else is complicated, but race is like oh no, it's very simple. These are the good people. These are the bad people. But that's that's not that's not reality, and that's not comedy. So a couple of other. Oh, uh, no, but I need to get your answer on the Andor front, what you thought of uh, uh, just if you had any thoughts, just given the the amount that you watched. It didn't grab me that much at first. I thought it's kind of good, but I just kind of got distracted and watched other things. Like I was watching The Patient. White Lotus, I think, is really good on HBO. We're really, uh, my wife and I are watching it. Also, I'm behind, my wife and I are out of sync on Andor, like I think. You know, I'm two or three ahead of her, so she hasn't started. So. Can, I, can I ask you how you deal with being out of sync? Because obviously it's your job. You're actually <laughs> required to watch these things. Yeah. I do this for a living, yeah. you know, as they say in collateral. Um, uh, but how does she deal with that fact? Because I, I have the same dynamic here at home where it's like, can I watch this? You're not here, you know, kind of thing. And it's a constant. The way I do is my, my wife doesn't really like movies that much because she can always like predict the third act. <laughs> Uh, there's ah, that guy did it or whatever. So I, I usually watch movies when I'm by myself. And when we're, uh, after the kids go to bed, we, we usually watch TV and it's like, what are we up to? Oh, the patient. We like the patient. So we, we basically like the same TV shows, although she secretly is watching Emily in Paris. When, you know, after I go to bed, sometimes she'll just sneak <laughs> off and watch it. I, by the way, do that. I am the person who does the same thing that your wife does when it comes to, to movies, which irritates my wife quite a great deal. Where I turned to her in the second act, and like, ah, that guy did it. <laughs> and then on the rare occurrences where something does not turn out, you know, in accordance with what I predicted, it's like a, a holy shit moment of like, yeah. oh my gosh, you got one wrong. I know. <laughs> so, a couple of other TV shows just for you to weigh in on. Let's go. Let's go to the bees. Barry, the boys, and the bear. 
didn't watch the bear. I, I watched the pilot. It didn't really grab me that much. I kind of hate uh, these shows about these macho Anthony Bourdain type shows. I love the other two. I thought I thought Barry was great. Although the last season, I kind of felt like they're reaching a climax at the end of the previous season, and they're kind of drawing things out this year. Although he did get arrested I, at the end. I so concur that was, with you. I liked the story, but I felt like this was a little too, you know, uh, extending things. But go ahead. And that sort of happened with the boys too, which was getting really to the boiling point at the end of the previous season. Because what's the Superman character called? I can't remember. Homelander. Homelander. Can we can we just appreciate this amazing performance by this guy? Who I mean, he, you know, Anthony, he was on that uh, show. What's on um, he was on that show. Uh, crap! But it was Showtime or Cinemax. I can't remember which. That I never got around to to watching, but people recommended to me. But then he comes in and and is this depiction of a you know super dickery character <laughs> in a way that is simultaneously disturbing and occasionally moving in terms of how sad it actually is even as he's basically being a superman space nazi yeah and i think he's so fantastically evil in that role that it's gonna kind of harm him for the rest of his career anthony stars and it's a great performance he's really playing you really want to there, there's no point where you don't want to punch the guy uh, as hard as you can. It's it's just a yeah. It's but he's so evil that I feel like he's going to have a hard time getting any work because you know we all just instinctively hate him now. You cannot if he looks anything like he looks in that show in any future project. <laughs> you cannot play a good guy. Well, you're just going to be like, oh, I hate that guy so much. He did have an interaction with the actor who played Soldier Boy. Oh, where, uh, yeah, that in this uh, most recent season where the actor had gone through this whole regimen of working out and turning himself into sort of Chris Hemsworth level shape. And Anthony, the Homelander star came up to him like on his first day at the job. He's like, dude, why didn't you just ask them to put more muscles in your outfit? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious. I I love that show, but I feel like they were kind of slowing things down a little bit this year and kind of, it's sort of like if the show is really good its first year, they're like, okay, we need seven more years of this. And they're like, well, we only have like three years with my ideas. But yeah, okay. yeah. They, they only have so many stories they can tell. I loved this season of what we do in the shadows. It just, there was this episode where they do the, the property brothers thing featuring the Sklar brothers, the, the comedians. It was, the jokes were so quick that I kept having to rewind it because I was laughing over the next joke. Just, uh, I, I'm just so impressed with that show, and I wish more people would watch it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I only saw a couple of them this year, but yeah, it's really funny. It's it's also, it's one of those shows you can't watch with kids anywhere near because it's so R-rated humor. But yeah, I, I do mean to to watch more of those. Is there any show that I haven't mentioned that particularly stuck out to you this year? What, have you been watching White Lotus? So I am behind on White Lotus. I watched the premiere, but then I need to catch up on it. I do know that it's uh, very sexualized this season and, and, you know, I'm just, what, one thing that I, I think is, is true though, is that uh, the, the approach that is used there is one that seems the white Lotus, the first season in particular to me stood, stood out as being something that you have to attain a certain degree of success in order to be able to do this kind of subversive humor and i wonder if the people who approved it understood how subversive it actually is yeah yeah that's a good point but you know it's rich people know very well there's a lot of horrible people in their in their universe i, I think it's a very upscale show it's 
It's very well, easy I'm, to I'm going to be curious about how the upcoming Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, it, it, at least from the trailers, seems like it's going to be dealing with a similar space. And obviously the original kind of had some of those features. So it will be, it'll be interesting to see how it complements or, or uh, it goes against that. Anything else? Hacks, Severance, Reacher, the Game of Thrones, House of Dragon, anything else that stuck out to you? Uh, Severance, my wife really likes, but I, I kept falling asleep. I couldn't get to, I watched like four of them. And I, I found it boring. I uh, just did not get into it. Yeah. Have you seen Industry, which has been on HBO? That, that was kind of good for, for a little while. It's about uh, bankers in London. It's on, it's on my list. I have not seen it yet. I've also not seen Slow Horses yet, which is also uh, on my list. Just to wrap things up, I mentioned earlier Rick and Morty as being indicative of kind of the, the use of multiverse things as, as a storytelling device that did not feel like a crutch. I feel like this season has been really a return to form. I don't know if you're even a fan of that show or not, but it has so many different story tropes that has actually made the use of those story tropes a an episode in terms of itself they have a they have an episode about the story train and they have this character within it you know for instance one of the most recent episodes was basically entirely built around the aspects of story writing you know they come across a a group of superheroes who are who are named things like retcon and you know other other aspects of it in order to uh, you know poke fun at the ridiculousness of of the approach that is used in so many different you know long running TV seasons and the like. I don't know if you are a fan of that show or if you even watched it, but I'm curious about kind of its impact on on you know potentially a meta critique of the way that we construct these stories today. Hmm. So I think you have a good idea for your PhD dissertation right there. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen it. Though. I, I, I can't. I, I think I watched one episode. I never got into it. I haven't seen it. I, people keep telling me to watch it. So I'll get around to it. Kyle Smith condemns me to the, the terrible uh, distinction of being a graduate student. <laughs> uh, Rick and Morty. Uh, culture studies. <laughs> hey, Rick and Morty culture studies is definitely something that people should, would sign up for, and the University of Phoenix should start offering it tomorrow. You could teach the seminar. You'd be the you'd be the hottest class in the whole university. <laughs> Just uh, one last uh, question for you before we end. Obviously, on the industry side of things, the whole conversation has been about all of these different studios and the industry not being able to replace what they're losing from cord cutting with the streaming market that they've invested a ton of money in the streaming market and that they are not seeing the return necessary for the amount of money that they're spending on all these projects and that this is creating problems for them because you know it's kind of a people have left the blockbuster but they haven't started doing the next thing yet they they are not you know they're not buying the the Blu-rays, even though you know the, they've clearly moved on from the DVD market. What is happening in the industry along those lines, and and what should we expect to see from it in the next year or two in terms of their attempts to adapt to this new marketplace? I think they're going to have to cut back. They're producing way too much content. Netflix in particular is leading the way, saying we, we have to have fifty new shows a week or whatever. They have to cut way back on that. Disney's way overspending. I don't think that many people are going to cut their Disney Plus subscription if they only have like you know one blockbuster new show a month as opposed to 
four or whatever it is now. So I think way less content would be great. And then we could all catch up and I could have some time to watch Rick and Morty. And I also think we're going to have to see consolidation. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, but you'd think somebody like Apple would buy Paramount or, or mm-hmm. Sony. I mean, Amazon could buy Sony, something like that. I can, I can picture a universe where people have maybe three or four streaming services and probably HBO, Netflix, and Disney are going to be them. Maybe one more, but I don't know. Why would we have both Peacock and Paramount Plus and Stars and Showtime? It just seems like too much. I can't possibly watch. Even if you only have the big three, you can't possibly keep up with everything you're doing. Amazon alone is producing just floods and floods of content. My wife insists on having all of these subscriptions so that she can access anything at any time. I find it maddening because I feel like I'm paying for things that I don't even know what's on it. And it's like, are we really, really paying this every month so that you can stream Yellowstone as opposed to DVRing it or whatever you're you know, like, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a multiverse of madness. But I mean, Paramount Plus is $5 a month and Peacock is $5 a month. You, can, you know, it's, think of it as one latte a month. Yeah. If only they would get back to some kind of concept where there would be, you know, a thing that would combine these things together in a bundle. I don't know if anybody's ever thought about that. My cable bill is like $120 a month when I cut the cord, and I, I'm definitely paying less than that for these streaming services. <laughs> Kyle Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.